The mission of the church does not stop because of a global pandemic any more than it would if there were world war. We would still be hopefully sending missionaries to the ends of the earth. And so we must anchor our hope in Christ because whether we live or whether we die, we belong to him, not to ourselves. Amen. You're listening to Kingdom Come, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Uh, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and uh, we are going to conclude our series, Kingdom Come, today uh, from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Still a little bit loud, so maybe we can turn that down just a little bit. So last week we uh, looked at the beginning of chapter 5, and we looked at the day of the Lord, and we learned that this is a day of vengeance and vindication, that the day of the Lord is coming. And because that is the day that Jesus comes back to judge the world in righteousness and justice, we should, with anticipation and joy, look to the end of the world and not with fear and not with worry. And so we learn that in light of his return, we should be living alert, awake, and sober lives as we anticipate this imminent return. And we learn that, remember, we don't belong to the night, we belong to the day. And today we're going to see that we don't only belong to the day, but we also belong to the family. And Paul is going to conclude his letter here with a series of practical applications, one after another, as we kind of see how we're to live in light of the second coming of Christ as a part of a body of believers. So we're not disjointed, segregated, just on our own trying to figure this out uh, as an isolated believer, but we're a part of a body. We're a part of a family. We're members of a church family. So uh, that is what we're going to look at today as we conclude this book. And um, what we're going to see, if you're taking note, is three main areas. So if you're taking note, we're going to see each one of these begins with a B. We're going to see first the body. What does it look like to be in the body of Christ? And then we're going to look at the blameless. We began the service with that benediction of call to worship. We're going to kind of close with it. Uh, at the end today. And then we'll see really the very end, the benediction of Paul's letter and kind of some practical things for that particular um, congregation. So look with me at verse 12 and we're going to read through uh, 12 through 22. He says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We just sang about that. Be at peace. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So we're going to look at this first section, the body. And Paul seems to zoom in on three distinct areas of focus for the local church in Thessalonica. So remember, Paul had ministered there in that city, uh, in the synagogue in particular, for about three weeks consecutively. 
And then after preaching Christ there, he just kind of moves on to the next town, to Berea. And remember, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the scriptures against what he said and confirmed what he was talking about, which I encourage all of us to be good Bereans. But Paul then later, probably years later, sends Timothy back and he's asking for an update. Tell me how the church is doing. As a faithful church planter who moves on, he's reaching back out to see how the church is doing. And Timothy brings some incredible news. Let me show it to you on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 8, or you can turn your page and look. But Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So I love this example. The church in Thessalonica had an impact that spread to the regions even beyond their own small four-wall fellowship. And much of that impact had to do with the fact that in the midst of their affliction, they were following Paul's example. And notice he says, you didn't only receive the word um, in like church, but you shared the word outside of the four walls of the gathering. And so the church of Thessalonica, you could say, was an evangelistic church. They took the gospel and took it to the streets. And that is certainly commendable, uh, to be an evangelistic church. That's what we're called to be. However, it may be that they were so focused on the mission that they forgot really how to care for some of the discipleship needs within their own church. And sometimes churches can do that. They can get so focused on fulfilling the mission uh, whatever the mission might be at the particular time, that they may use people, they may run over people uh, who get in the way of the mission or get in the way of the work. If that's happened to you, I'm sorry. Some churches are like that. Some leaders are, we've got to do the mission. And if you're not with us, then we're leaving you behind. So get on board. And, and I, th I think we have to be careful that we don't do that. And we could devote an entire sermon to that topic. But for our purposes today, Paul, you're going to see, has an ask, and then he has an urge, and then he has a list of commands. So maybe you missed it. But he begins with an ask. And so I see three areas here in the body. And these are three areas of focus for us. So if you're taking note, uh, each of these ends with a ship. Okay, so first, leadership. And this is, he's going to say how we should respond to those who were the spiritual authority or are the spiritual authority in our lives. So we're going to see how to deal with leadership. And then discipleship. How do we minister to different types of believers among us? And then we're going to see membership. And the word membership's not in the Bible, but the word member is. And this is how all of us work together in the church to advance the mission gracefully. And I think the word church fell off the map there, but it's there. So let's look at each one of those individually. First, he has an ask. And the ask has to do with church leadership. Notice verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to do three things. He says, first of all, we ask you to respect those who labor among you, and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, notice with me first on this note that he says, respect those among you and esteem them. He's not using a singular uh, form here. Uh, he's using a plural, 
idea. So the idea is there is a plurality of leaders, uh, their work and them. There is no idea in the first century church of a lone ranger pastor who alone had unchallenged authority within a local congregation. Uh, there are very few church movements out there where there aren't a board of elders or a, board, a team that is around uh, at least a lead guy or, or a team of elders that are working together. And so uh, we see in the early church overseers or elders who God raises up to lead a flock, to care for a flock, to teach and instruct a flock, and to protect and guard a flock. And one person noted that these are like your brothers in Christ, but they're kind of like big brothers. Uh, not in the sense that they're bigger than you, but they're over you. And so there's a, a level of, uh, of nobility to the task that they have. And it's a high calling, but it is a job. It is a work. It is a task. And so this high calling comes with it an expectation of blameless character and a particular gifting in the area of biblical and doctrinal teaching. You can look that up later in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1. But Paul says to the church, and how to respond to leaders, he says three things. If you're taking note, he says, first of all, I wanna encourage you, I wanna ask you to respect your leaders or respect the elders. Now, obviously I've got skin in the game here because I'm one of the elders, so this is a little bit awkward, but let me just teach you what the text says. He says to respect the elders, and you can translate the word respect a little more accurately as recognize. So you could be, he could be saying recognize that, uh, that they're here. So the idea is you give them recognition or give them respect that their office commands. I think too many Christians have a high regard for themselves and a low regard for their pastors. Now, thankfully, we don't have that real issue here. But some people don't recognize that pastors are put into their lives to help guide them, to help shepherd them, and even to help protect them. And I'm always saddened and surprised when I get the minute and a half phone call that someone is leaving our church to go on to another fellowship. And if it's a solid fellowship, we're happy. But I'm always surprised that that decision was made months and months ago without asking the leaders in your life their counsel on it. And I realize in those moments, maybe, maybe I haven't been respected as one of their pastors um, because if I was someone they were seeking guidance on, maybe they would seek the counsel of those that God has put in their lives to help spiritually guide them. And so he first says respect or recognize that these people are over you in the Lord and they have a job of admonishing you. And so secondly, notice that Paul says, I'm asking you to, in verse 13, esteem them very highly for their work. Now, I'm so thankful Paul doesn't say here, esteem them for their title, esteem them for their gifting, esteem them for their good looks. Of course, we could say that about our elders here. Um, he doesn't say it's who they are, but the ministry work that they do. Uh, it's the work that they do that earns the esteem of the congregation. Uh, one person said this, in the New Testament church, honor is not given to people because of any qualities that they may possess due to birth or social status or natural gifts, but only on the basis of the spiritual task to which they're called. So catch that with me. Esteem them highly for their work. So pastoral ministry, or ministry in general, it's, a, it's work, it's a task, and it's not an easy task. Uh, pastors are called to do a lot of different things. If you think about it, they're called to teach a congregation of very unique, very different people how to follow Christ and how to understand God's word, even though every single member of that congregation are very unique uh, and in, in a unique place spiritually. Now think about this. Pastors have to pray for and counsel people 
often at all hours of the night or the morning and when it's not convenient. Pastors work hard to know every single person, to weep for them, to weep with them, to be ready to help them move or do whatever's needed at the drop of a hat. And uh, often uh, that goes unappreciated. And thankfully, again, we have a church that is uh, not in that camp. Pastors work hard often um, finding themselves the first to be criticized for problems in a church. And most pastors that I know have been betrayed by close friends. And if they've been in ministry long enough, they're usually lonely, they're usually weary, they're usually frustrated and disappointed by obstacles that get in their path while they try to shepherd a flock. So I have some stats for you. I was a little bit surprised by this, uh, but I'll just throw some numbers up there. So 40% of pastors who were surveyed recently say they have considered leaving the pastorate in the last three months. So in 2020, that number has definitely gone up. I think that was uh, polled in 2018. So that number has definitely gone up. Uh, 1,700, actually over 1,700 pastors have left the ministry every month in the last year. So 1,700 pastors are done with ministry every month. 3,500 people a day in 2019 left the church. 3,500 people a day, actually a little bit over that. And then 46% of pastors say that they have experienced burnout or depression to the extent that they needed to take a leave of absence from the ministry. So Paul says, hey, they're laboring among you and they're over you in the Lord and they admonish you. So don't reject their admonishments. Um, don't just leave and peace out and go to another fellowship. Um, instead, esteem them. Esteem them very highly because of their work. But the third thing Paul says, notice with me, is Paul says in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. Now, I get the first thing, show respect, show recognition. That's hard when you don't respect a leader in your life. And giving them esteem, that makes sense. But why would being at peace with other church members have any impact on the leadership? Well, one of the greatest blessings that we can offer our church leaders is biblically working through disagreements that we may have with other believers and being willing to have uh, humility, repentance, and reconciliation. <laughs> I have more stats for you, but 85% um, of pastors say their greatest problem is dealing with problem people. That is the biggest issue. It's not persecution. It's not the government. It's not, it's not the decisions to mask or no mask. The biggest issue that pastors face is problem people within the church. In fact, 40% 40, uh, 40 of pastors report a conflict with a church member at least once a month. So at least once a month, there is a conflict that has to be resolved. So no wonder Paul says, be at peace. Be at peace with yourselves. Work out through Matthew 18, those little disagreements before you've got to bring it to the church. So David Gusick says this. He says, with this simple command, Paul said Christians should simply put away all their squabbles and arguments. And this is a great way to esteem and love the leaders of your church. So how we work with our church leaders, we pray for them. We submit to them, as we learned in Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, that makes it a blessing to them and to us. Uh, and so let's zoom out a little bit further. Let's now look at how we disciple in the church various types of people. Look with me at verses 14 and 15, and you'll see a bunch of different types of people. So this is kind of a discipleship area. First, he says, we urge you. So he moves from asking now to urging. For all of us in discipleship, brothers, he says, Here's what we do with different types of people. First, he mentions, notice with me, the idol. 
Uh, and what do we do with people who are idle? Well, Paul says, admonish them. Now, I'll say first of all, it is the task of all believers to make disciples. That is not the job of the minister. Some people say, oh, like who's the minister? If, if someone ever asks you that question at Shoreline, hey, who's the minister at Shoreline? You should say all of us. We're all ministers, right? We're all to be servants. We're all to be discipling. Uh, there may be a lead equipper, according to Ephesians 4, but we're all in ministry. And so um, we're all to make disciples. And Paul says, we urge you brothers, not we urge you leaders of the brothers. We urge all of you uh, and then he describes five types of people, but he begins with the idol. And the word idol in other translations is a little more punchy. And um, the word can be also translated unruly. Unruly. Now, this is a very fascinating Greek term. It's, it's a term that you would use of a military marching in formation. Everyone, you've seen them. They're all lined up. They're all lockstep. I was in marching band. So I, I, you guys, yeah, don't get a mental picture, but uh, high stepping, we're doing the thing. I've got the trumpet and doing this. And so uh, all in lockstep, perfect formation. We're forming smiley faces and the word win and all that stuff on the field. But just, so I just ruined this whole illustration. But picture, picture if you would, a, a, an actual army and not a nerdy marching band. Um, you've got these soldiers marching in perfect formation and in rank. They're all lockstep. But then one of them begins to kind of saunter off. He just kind of, kind of walks off, and he's checking his watch, and he's looking at his phone, and he's eating chips, and he's not in formation. He's off on his own. And that's the idea here. The idea of someone who is idle is someone who's breaking rank, and they're out of step with the battalion. Paul is saying this is the Christian who has fallen out of formation while the church is advancing the gospel, and their focus has now moved off of what they were supposed to be on, which is the mission, and their focus is now on something else, probably themselves. And Paul says they need to be admonished, not necessarily by the leaders, but by everyone. Uh, they need to be challenged. Notice he says uh, they need to be admonished. Another word is warned. They're not keeping in step with the work that God has on the earth. Now, I believe the pandemic this year has caused many to fall into idleness. And I just see this happening. And we need to make sure that we are not kind of falling out of the ranks, uh, but we are focused. We're not being idle. And I want to challenge us and warn us not to be idle. I want to admonish us that we would be in lockstep with what Christ is doing. Now, secondly, Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, literally, this is translated small-souled. Small-souled. Uh, what he's saying here is that something this person experienced in the past or their natural imposition is timid or is anxious or is worried. Something happened to them or they're just naturally kind of, kind of um, just small-souled. They're anxious, they're timid, they're, they're kind of worried about life. And Paul does not say warn them. He doesn't say warn them like you do the idol. Here he says encourage them. So people who are of little heart need to be encouraged by their brothers and sisters in Christ not to lose heart, but to take heart. And so we need to come alongside those who are maybe faint-hearted. And this year has wrecked them. And we need to call them. We need to be in their life and encourage them in their walk with Christ. Well, thirdly, Paul says, here's what we do with the weak. He just says, help them. Help the weak. And this has to do with those who are spiritually anemic. They need to be upheld. They need to be lifted up in prayer they need to be given assistance by more mature believers. This may describe the person 
who's struggling with sexual addiction, struggling with alcohol or narcotic abuse. They need the help of more solid Christians to come alongside them and help them, lift them up to fight the good fight and finish the race. For others, it might be anger, it might be gossip, it might be crass language, and where they're weak, we as the church can come alongside them and lift them up. So Paul says, help the weak. Fourthly, notice he says, his fourth category is all of them. And notice what he's saying for us to do with all people we're discipling. He says, be patient with them, all of them. (laughs) When we invite other believers to follow us as we follow Christ, it doesn't have to be overly organized or programmed, it's just hey, let's meet together on a certain amount of occasions, weekly, other, every other week. Let's get on Zoom. Let's pray together, whatever it is. And let's talk about Christ. Let's read something together. Let's, let's pray together. Let's answer questions that you have about doctrine. When we do that with other believers, we can be tempted with them to lose our patience because maybe they ghost us. Maybe they aren't reading what we asked them to. They didn't memorize that verse. And some people flat out reject God's word and run back to heresy. And others may say, I'm not going to listen to your counsel. I'm still going to pursue this shipwreck relationship. And they make poor decisions. And this has happened with many people. You've discipled, I've discipled. And we just need patience for them, a lot of patience, because sanctification is not an overnight event. It's a lifetime. And and so we need to be patient with everyone that we're ministering to. Again, David Gusick says this um, really well said. He said, Christianity is shown by its ability to love and help difficult people. And we do not look for only perfect people to minister to and to minister with. Amen? So we need to be willing to be patient with the people in our lives, even family, as we point them to Christ. Now, finally, Paul says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So this is kind of a fifth category. Uh, He's saying as we disciple others, we need to help them remember that God is the avenger. That God is perfectly just, and thus we don't need to exact revenge or set records straight. Our response to those who mistreat us should be to seek their good, not their destruction. And so for us to help people, we need to help teach them uh, to forgive. We need to teach them to be reconciled with one another. And I think that's one of the missing elements of body life in the church, and that's so key. And that may help heal some of the division that we see in so many churches. Just listen, we need, to, we need to work on not repaying anyone evil for evil, but seek to do good. Even if uh, they strike us, we turn the other cheek. So we've looked at how we respond to leaders and how we respond to people we're discipling, but what about how we interact for the entire church community in general? I believe these next few commands are for every believer in the body of Christ in the church. You could say membership. So notice with me, just kind of these real key, very short commands. First he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Anybody here struggling with what is God's will for my life? I wish I knew what God's will was for me. Well, it's given to us right here. God's will for you is to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. So notice, these are three things that happen all the time. First, rejoice. How often are we to rejoice? Say it with me. Always. Not only in 2019, not only in 2021, but in 2020. Not only when we're in good health, with a full bank account, 
and before and after a great meal, but also in times of emptiness and in times of loss and even in times of death. Charles Spurgeon said this, turn this book over and see if there be any precept that the Lord has given you in which he has said, groan in the Lord always. And again, I say groan. Well, you may groan if you like. You have Christian liberty for that, but at the same time, do believe that you have a larger liberty to rejoice, for so it is put before you. So rejoice always. Secondly, God's will for you is that you pray without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to pray out loud all day. Sorry, boss. The Bible tells me I've got to pray without ceasing. I can't do this sale right now because I'm praying without ceasing. No, it doesn't mean we necessarily have to pray out loud with our eyes closed, with our hands folded, on our knees, head bowed, in private places. It means that the relationship that we have with the Father should be so intimate that it seems like an ongoing, unbroken conversation. I like the Nehemiah prayers. You know what those are? Where some, something is presented to Nehemiah and in the presence of the king, he prays. Did he say, hold on, king, I gotta, I gotta pray in my closet at home. I'll be back in a minute. No, right then in the moment, he says, I, I prayed to the Lord my God. So maybe under his breath, Lord, please give me wisdom. I'm not sure how to respond. Thank you, Lord, there it is. And he goes forward. And so I wanna encourage us, as Paul does, to just pray without ceasing. Live a life of unbroken, intimate fellowship with the Father. Well, finally, Paul says, God's will for you is that you give thanks. I like that, give thanks. But that, I don't like the rest of that. Give thanks in all circumstances. Not give thanks for all circumstances, because that seems a little silly. Give thanks for all circumstances. No, he says give thanks in all circumstances. So it doesn't matter what dire situation you're facing this morning, you can still give thanks to God in the midst of what you're suffering. Why? Because he's worthy of our praise and he's worthy of our gratitude and he's sovereign and good. So we can give thanks in all circumstances. Now, that's God's will for you. Uh, now there's a few do nots and a few do's right after that. Notice with me, Paul says do not a few things. So first he says, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies. Would you guys circle that word quench? Um, he's using this in reference to fire. The idea is that you're putting a fire out. And certainly the metaphor of fire is an apt description given that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in what seemed to be tongues of fire. Uh, and so some have suggested that the church in Thessalonica was overusing and even abusing spiritual gifts in their gatherings, so much so that people were beginning to go to one of two extremes. They either completely put the Spirit's fire out, not by stopping it, but by beginning to uh, kind of use the gift in an unhealthy way. So they were exalting the gift and they made the gift the focus. Or on the other end of the pendulum, they completely rejected the use of gifts and they had contempt for them. They despised them. So Paul goes on to say what we should do. He says, don't do that. Don't quench the spirit. When the spirit's doing a work. Don't quench that by making it fleshy. But then on the other side, don't despise when the spirit is at work. And so Paul says, here's what you should do. You should test everything and you should hold fast what is good and you should abstain from every form of evil. So to the church in Thessalonica, he says, don't just receive everything that someone says prophetically as true or acceptable. No, test it according to scripture. He says, don't put out the fire of the Holy Spirit by saying anything and everything that comes into your head. 
No, in all activities in the church, we test it against scripture. We keep what is good. We reject what is evil, what is man-centered, and what puts the focus and attention on something other than Christ. Paul is encouraging the church, the body of Christ, how to conduct ourselves in his household. And so he, I think, speaks to body life in this first section. Now, uh, we're going to move on, move on to our second idea, which is verses 23 and 24, the blameless. So notice with me, verse 23, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's not overlook God's work contrasted with the human efforts that had just been listed above. We just heard all these bullet points. I'm supposed to do this. I got to honor this guy. I got to esteem him. I got to not put out the Spirit's fire. I'm supposed to do all these things. I've got my checklist. But notice where Paul emphasizes this. Uh, Paul says, now may the God of peace, may he do the sanctifying work in you. Uh, And so the ultimate work of sanctification within the entire man or woman in spirit, soul, and body is attributed to the God of peace. So do we have a part to play in becoming more holy? Do do I have a part to play? Well, sure, I have a part to play. But (laughs) it's kind of similar to when parents of younger, like especially boys, younger boys, or if you have a younger girl kind of coming in the kitchen, so younger boys will come into the garage to help dad, you know, when they're three to five years old. I'm going to help dad or little girl. I'm going to help mom in the kitchen cook dinner. But I, 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 can, I, don't, I don't cook anything. Um, so, you know, I've tried. It was, uh, it was a fail. So in the garage, I can't actually do construction either, so I'm hopeless. But uh, in the garage, Aiden comes in. He's five years old, and, you know, th- he wants to help dad. So you include him. Of course, you're not the mean dad. There are some dads who are like, I can do it better myself, kid. Get over here. Uh, you know, watch dad instead of help dad. But if you want to, you know, kind of teach your son, you include him. So you bring him in and go, oh, here, here, buddy, hold this hammer. And, you know, he drops it because it's too heavy. Uh, and you, you take the nail and you, hit, you put his hand on the hammer and you hold your hand over it, right? And so you're actually the one who's hammering the nail, not him. You're the one doing most of the work. But he doesn't understand. He's a little guy. He doesn't understand the bigger project. He doesn't have the vision of all the the materials that are needed and the tools that are needed to complete the work. You, you wouldn't say, all right, son, there's the skill saw. Have fun with it. Dad will check back on you when you're done an hour from now, right? You wouldn't do that. Table saw. You wouldn't do that. Uh, and so in the same way, mom, you wouldn't just say, well, you know, my daughter will know the recipe. She's two. She'll figure it out and she'll, we'll just let her use the oven, right? It's silly. Uh, and so they don't have the skill or knowledge to complete the work, but they can help mom and dad by joining in the task and obeying what is asked of them. So we say, okay, son, okay, daughter, hold, hold this nail for a minute, or, or here, put this mitt on and open the door. But, but we're the one, the parent is the one doing the work. And I, I think, in a small way, that's kind of what our sanctification looks like. In the end, it's not our works, it's not our achievement, it's not our spiritual power that ultimately completes the work. No, it's the God of peace who sanctifies us completely. I like what Morris says, He says, the way in which he affects the transition indicates that it is only in the power of the God on whom he calls that his exhortations can be brought to fruition. In other words, he's saying, I have been urging you to do certain things, but it's only in God's strength that you will be able to do them. So many of our prayers sound like 
rededications for the Lord instead of surrender. Lord, I just surrender today. Allow the work of Christ to fill every area of my sanctification. So I like that Paul indicates in his prayer that our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Um, Now, a lot of people are very opinionated about this. John Stott tells us, don't overthink these categories of body, soul, and spirit. Some people can overinflate that and kind of say we're a mini trinity. We have body, soul, and spirit. Um, other people say, no, there's, there's really just the material part of man, the body, and there's the immaterial, the soul and spirit. Uh, and sometimes those are used interchangeably. Um, I don't want us to get hung up on that, but notice that Paul works from the spirit to the soul to the body in that order. And uh, quoting Lightfoot, John Stott says, the spirit is the ruling faculty in man through which he holds communication with the unseen world. That's the spirit. The soul is the seat of all his impulses and affections, the center of his personality, while the body links him to the material world and is the instrument of all his outward deeds. So Paul's bigger idea here is that we would be entirely preserved, that we would be, notice, protected from blemish or defect in our entirety so that until the return of Christ, In every area of our lives, God is doing a consistent work of sanctifying us in which no one else will find fault. So that's the focus. Paul says, until that day comes that we've been talking about in this series, until the day of Christ, until the second coming, we want the God of peace to be doing this complete sanctifying work in you so that no one will find any blame. Green says their firm hope is that God will keep them blameless so they can stand before him without shame or guilt. The work of salvation, planned in their election and affected in their calling and conversion, will be brought to completion at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that encourage you? That incredibly encourages me. Like, it's not up to me to finish the race or to finish the work. I do my part, but I can rest in the sanctifying work of the God of peace. So, if you doubt that this morning, there's maybe someone here that's still wondering, eh, I hear what you're saying, but there's still, I'm not too sure. Well, verse 24 is for you. (laughs) Paul says, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He will surely do it. We may be unfaithful, but he who calls us is faithful and he will surely do it even if and when we fall short. What incredibly encouraging words to close this letter uh, to the church in Thessalonica. Now, we have one last section, the benediction. And a benediction is simply kind of a, a word of praise that concludes something. We have a benediction every week here. uh, And we will conclude our service with the benediction we just read, but here's an extra benediction. Um, And just notice with me the specifics to this church. Verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Wow, that's a little serious. And verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Okay, so notice with me, there's prayer. Secondly, there's a time of greeting and fellowship. Thirdly, there's an update from missionaries. There's news of what God is doing in and around the world. And then finally, there's grace that they're dismissed with. Actually, some people believe in the Greek, the way this is constructed with the Greek letters being synonymous, that this is what the Thessalonians were to use in a church gathering. I think that's interesting. I'm not sure if that's true. It's certainly possible. There's prayer, there's a greeting, 
There's an update for missionaries, and then there's a closing. Of course, there's worship and teaching. But uh, until Jesus returns, we are to meet and greet with one another. We are to pray for others. We're to stay informed on what the Lord is doing. We heard today about a pastor in China that needs prayer, that needs our intercession. Uh, and then we also need uh, to be a community that relies on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think this is kind of a cool... Uh, just closing word. But I think verse 27 is actually interesting. Uh, this was a serious thing. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. This is one of the mo more serious uh, things that Paul says to any of his churches. But it was important that they know um, that the end of the world uh, was something they could anticipate and live lives um, separated from this world for. So before we close... I want to bring kind of three points of application for our entire series. We've been looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 with this series, Kingdom Come. And we've been looking at what our lives look like in light of living between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And next week we'll look at his first advent and his incarnation. But how are we to live as we look ahead towards, toward Christ's second advent? How are we to live? Well, kind of summarizing our series, uh, these are three points. Number one, we stop fearing death and the future, and we anchor our hope in Christ. We've learned that Christian death is more like sleep, where we awake to eternal life in the resurrection and to be with the Lord and his people forever. So the grave is not the end, amen? Death is a graduation, not a conclusion. So to be absent from our body is to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we stop fearing death. Now listen very closely. Not fearing death doesn't mean we don't wear seatbelts anymore, we don't eat wisely, we don't see our doctors, we don't hide in a bunker waiting for the return of Christ. It does mean we aren't held in captivity at the threat of sickness, at the threat of persecution, at the threat of danger. The mission of the church does not stop because of a global pandemic any more than it would if there were world war. We would still be hopefully sending missionaries to the ends of the earth. And so we must anchor our hope in Christ because whether we live or whether we die, we belong to him, not to ourselves. Amen? Secondly, I want to challenge you, believer. We stop looking at the calendar and we start looking at our character. Now, I do think eschatology can greatly affect our posture. Uh, if we believe it's all going to get worse and worse and the end is near and we'll be raptured out of the trials then that can cause some people to retreat and just look at the watch and, and, and just wait like a bored dad at his daughter's birthday party with a bunch of other parents. Uh, if we believe that we help usher in the millennium and Christ's return by making society better, well, then that may cause us to become politically active and try to better the world in every way. If we believe we're going to live through the tribulation, then that may gird us up for difficulty and cause us to proclaim the gospel more boldly. So yes, what we believe about the end of the world does matter and it does affect our lives. But we need to realize that if our whole focus in eschatology, in end time study, is just to get into the minutia of the calendar and the newspaper and try to line up all these different things and we do that to the neglect of our walk with Christ, then I've said it before, we're staring at the bottom line of the, of the eye chart and we're missing the big E. 
We need to stop looking at the calendar and predicting the day Christ returns and who is Gog and Magog and is there a chip that's going to go in people's right hand. And we need to start being presently faithful in our communities with an obtainable gospel witness. We need to guard our hearts from immorality and compromise. We need to wake up and we need to sober up as we await Christ's imminent return. So stop looking at the calendar. Start looking at our character. Now, finally, as we learn today, we build and sustain graced gospel community. And I just want to close with this. We lean into, not away from, the local church. We've seen how to do that practically today in our text. But as we close, just a simple question. It's a simple question, not for your neighbor, not for your relative, for you this morning to reflect on personally as a family, as a follower of Christ. Maybe this is a question you talk through with your spouse at lunch today. Maybe you talk tonight with, a, with your family as you uh, gather together and open the word of God in prayer. But here's a question. How deep is your relationship with your local church? Now, I want to think about this in terms of a house, a house with various rooms. I want you to picture being invited to a friend's house or actually just being invited to a house. If you were invited to someone's house, which room would you be in? Which room would you be in? So it depends on the person, doesn't it? Depends on the person. So if the person were a stranger, I think we have a picture here, the furthest you would get is the foyer. If a person's a stranger, you get to the foyer. If someone only gets into your foyer, it means they're there for drop and stop, right? They, they're dropping a package off, or they're dropping dinner off, right? And so if, if they're a stranger, they don't get further than that. That's as far as they get. You don't get into deep and long conversation, kind of keep the door maybe uh, you know, open a little bit. If the person's an acquaintance, maybe you get a little bit further. You get into the living room. You make your way into the living room. If you get that far, you definitely have a deeper relationship. Okay? Strangers don't get past the foyer usually. right? You don't invite your Uber Eats driver in to have a seat. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you're that guy. <laughs> hey, let's talk about the election. Right? You're probably that guy. Okay? That doesn't happen with uh, someone who's a stranger, maybe more of an acquaintance. But then, then there's the kitchen. And the kitchen is where conversation becomes more real, conversation becomes transparent, the formalities are removed, the relationship deepens. If you're a stranger, you don't go into someone's kitchen. When I don't know someone that well, I don't go in and open the fridge and open the cabinets. And when people do that at my house, I try to say, make yourself at home. Uh, but I, I just can't, I don't have that sort of freedom with people. I'm like looking through the cabinets like, hey, what do you guys have? By the way, whose house is that? That's a beautiful house. But my question here, church, how deep is your relationship with your church? Are you a foyer family? Are you a living room Christian? Or have you sought to truly know others and be known and lay down some of your freedoms to become a member of a covenant community and use your gifts to bless and build up others? See, as we re- await the return of Christ, we acknowledge that we don't do this alone, that we together cry out our Father who is in heaven. He's our Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We join the other saints who together affirm the faithfulness of Yahweh to his people. You and I, we are the fellowship of the blood-bought. We are members of his household, we're part of his body. So today as we wait for the return of Christ, as we look at the faithfulness of God in sending his son to become a man, to fulfill the law and die in our place, we say, oh, come, let us adore him. Let us adore him for his great and unending faithfulness. 
because he who called us is faithful and he will do it. So let's lean in to the body of Christ and not away. Amen? Father, we pray that you would continue to be at work in this church. We thank you for those this year who have leaned in. They have made the gathering a priority. Lord, they have sought ways to serve and use their gifts to bless and build up the church. They have given of their time, talents, and treasure. Lord, they have overcome obstacles this year. Many are are still tuning in from home and are providentially hindered and are even watching today. And we thank you for them, Lord, for their continued desire to be involved and to be in proximity to the church as much as they were able to. We pray that you'd bless them. Lord, for those who are leaning in, continue to help us, Lord, to live lives set apart for you. Help us not to lean away from the body, uh, but to bless and submit to our leaders, to disciple others, Lord, to live every day as a member of the body of Christ, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances, because this is your will. So Lord, thank you that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even so, come. Lord, thank you for this time together. We worship you. We thank you for your faithfulness, that you are faithful, and that you will do it. It's in Christ's name alone that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.